Hey, that's uh, I owe that all to Metamucil, by the way. If you uh, <laughs> is Jeff Jones here? Jeff, he is not here. Is anyone from his group here? Hey, would you stand for a moment? I want you to. I want to recognize some people that uh, invited us to dinner and uh, they let us eat first. If we'd recognize them um, this morning, so I, I'm holding up my end of the deal. Um, but uh, the singles group, there's actually a, a group of people here who are single that meet together to uh, encourage one another, to support one another. If you are single and looking for that type of encouragement, in fact, you're all in the same row. Look, go ahead, stand up for a second. Go ahead. God, would you stand up? Almost, you're almost in the same row. Anyway, there's a group of people. If you're single, looking for some encouragement, looking for a place to get together, see that row. <laughs> so it works out good. Is uh, Dean Samsvik here? Is Dean here? Dean, stand up for a moment. Last week, we had the opportunity, Linda and I, to go to a conference down in San Diego. And as I always do, I call Dean at the last minute and say, Hey, Dean, what are you doing Sunday? And then he breaks out into a cold sweat, and I can feel it coming through the phone. And, uh, and he uh, is always so gracious in filling in for me. And uh, every report that I got, you did a great job. And I appreciate that, as well as everybody else. So. Someone told me if I ignore you, you'll go away. I haven't tried that yet. Where are you going? Oh, good. As I mentioned, we had the opportunity last week to be in uh, San Diego. It was for a uh, conference of professional athletes who get together to uh, encourage one another in their walk with the Lord. And uh, as we were there, it's kind of fun because it's an annual thing and we get a chance to see people that we don't get to see on a regular basis because of the nature of their profession. You know, they get, you know, one, one minute they're here and the next minute they're in uh, New England or next, next time they're in Detroit or whatever. And so we get separated by distance, but we still have some close um, friendships that we've been able to generate because of uh, the time that we spend together. Anyway, um, to make a long story longer, we had... Um, we had one particular couple that had been traded to Detroit and was, were playing for the Lions and uh, are no longer playing and they've been out of ball for a couple of years. And uh, since he was an engineer, he decided to uh, get a job with General Motors and that's where he found himself after his playing days were over. And he had a story that he told us that I thought was fascinating in light of what we've been discussing. And uh, so he told us a story about how he went to work for GM. And uh, regretfully, because of the, the nature of the industry right now in a recessionary mode, uh, he had to get, he was laid off of his job as an engineer with General Motors because he didn't have the seniority and all that kind of stuff. But he had a friend who was working for um, the Detroit Zoo. And um, what he had heard from his friend was that they had a gorilla at this particular zoo that was like, based on, I, I guess they do attendance figures and, uh, you know, exit kind of polls, you know, what did you like most about the zoo, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, this guy works for the zoo. And 75% of the visitors to the Detroit Zoo were fascinated by a particular gorilla that they had on ex exhibit at the zoo. Well, anyway, this particular gorilla got sick and was very sick, nearing death, and they, and they couldn't display the gorilla anymore, and they were afraid that in a recession you don't want to spoil your, your main attraction. And so since he was out of work, they offered him a position to, to dress as a gorilla and, and just to kind of stay in this particular gorilla. It was, it was one of those open exhibits where they have like, you know, the, the rocks and the, and the caves and the water that steps right in front of the people. And in, in the next one, and then they had the lion next door and it's kind of open. And, and anyway, they asked him if he'd do that. Well, 
you know, having played professional football, he didn't have a problem imitating a gorilla. So he thought that it would be the thing to do. He was a nose guard. But he thought it would be a good thing to do, and uh, that's what he did. And so for about three weeks, he was doing this gorilla imitation, and nobody knew the better, and the attendance was still up, and they were having a great time, and he started to get bored with what he was doing, because you can only run around and, you know, pick these and eat, pretend you're eating bugs so often. And uh, so he, was, he would jump from one place to another. Well, they had a rope that was there, and so he thought, well, I'm going to start doing some swinging tr tricks and acrobatics and things like this. And so he did it, and in the, in the midst of doing that, he fell into the next, land, the, the next den of lions. And now he's stuck. And he's in a position where he doesn't know what to do, and he had never imitated a gorilla before, so he wasn't sure how to handle this. And he just kind of froze, and he saw the lion was coming over to him, and he, and he just f froze and stood still. And the lion, as the closer the lion got, the more worried that he got. And finally, the lion puts both of his paws up on the back of this gorilla's shoulders. And this guy starts screaming, Help! Get me out of here! Help! Get me out of here! And he could feel the breath of the lion on his ear. And then the most amazing thing happened. He said he heard this. Hey, man, if you don't be quiet, we're both going to lose our job. <laughs> well, you know, when he told me that story, I thought, well, yes, you know what? That's an amazing twist uh, when you think about all the possibilities that exist. And uh, we've been going through this series on pleasing God, and I thought, you know, what a great story that illustrates the problem that we have with what really pleases God. What a twist that it is when you think about all the possibilities that exist of how can we please God or why should we please God. It's been fascinating to go through this series, and this is the concluding um, uh, session of the series that we've gone through. And the thing that amazed me as we've gone through this and taken a look at what the Bible does have to say about what pleases God, it begins to make us a little uncomfortable as far as our religious tradition is concerned. Many of us grew up in environments where certain things are taught to us that those are things, if you do them, they'll please God. More importantly, if you don't do them, then God will be pleased. And so what we get in is in a cycle of kind of we go around in circles of things that we do not do to please God. And the Christian faith is not that type of a walk. Because if you look at Ephesians chapter 4 and Galatians 5 sometime, you'll find that we're to walk, which means one step in front of the other step. It's interesting how we do that. You ever notice that? I don't know if you ever noticed that. But we don't walk like this. I stopped doing this. I stopped doing that. I stopped doing this. I stopped doing that. I stopped doing this. I stopped doing that. Boy, man, I'm really a Christian. I'm growing as a Christian. No, it's not. It's like, I stop doing this, and I start doing this. I put off this, but I put on this. And I start to walk, and I start to do, and I stop to do, and I start to do. And so there are actual things that we begin to do. It's not a life of just stopping to do everything that you used to do. But it's a life that says, stop doing those things, but now start doing these things. You see how it works? And so we've gone through this thing, and we've been challenged to identify how we're living to please God. If we're walking around in circles, then you're not, you weren't paying attention to what we were learning. You should be putting off something, but putting something else on, and you're to be walking and progressing in your walk with the Lord. And so it becomes a matter of where we actually could begin to run the race. We start off walking, but we should all end up running. And so we go through this, and uh, what we've seen in this particular series is uh, basically an outline that broke out to two things. 
One is why we should please God, which deals with motivation. Why should I please God? The second thing was how can we please God, which deals with the means by which we're to accomplish the motivation that we already have. Desire in and of itself is never enough. I could have a desire to be the greatest husband in the world. But if I don't have the means by which to accomplish that desire, then all I do is get frustrated. I've got the desire to please God. That's wonderful, but now we need the means to identify how it can be accomplished. So that's basically what we've gone through. This morning, this session will be an overview of everything that we've learned in the last 20 weeks. And I thought, man, you know what? If you're, if you're subject to motion sickness, you're going to have to hang on because we are going to be flying through here. But I just came out of the 8 o'clock service, and if you come out of the 8 o'clock service, then you're going to think that this is a cakewalk compared to what you just went through. And if you're going into 11, trust me, this is going to be easy compared to what you're going to get. But that's where we're at, and so that's what we're going to do. The first thing that we took a look at is, are you ready? All right, let's go then. Here we go. Put that patch behind your ear because we're rolling. So what we, we, what we saw originally was, why should we please God? And as I said, this deals with motivation. Why please God? And there were six biblical reasons that we looked at. These aren't things that we just make up. And one of the most exciting things that I get about doing this is I finally have come to the conclusion in my own heart that as long as the Word of God is preached, it'll never come back empty. That's God's promise. When you stick to the text, it'll always have results which is a fascinating thing because for many speakers you throw things out and you hope that some of them catch but the reality of what God says is that Chuck don't worry about it you just stick to my text and you just do what I tell you to do and I'll guarantee you there will always be results and so as we've gone through this there should be results in your lives as far as how you've incorporated this in your daily activities and we'll challenge you and I'm going to question you as we go through it in each particular step have you met, made any application? And if not, all you're doing is walking around in a circle. And you wonder sometimes why it's so frustrating uh, that your Christian life isn't as fulfilling or it isn't producing the kind of results that you think that it should. Well, a lot of it has to do with you're not doing anything. You're just walking around in circles. How far are you going to get walking around in a circle? So let's take a look at it. Six biblical reasons why we saw we should please God. Number one is the purpose of creation. We saw in Revelation 4.11 that everything God made is made to bring Him glory and to bring Him pleasure. You and I are created for the purpose of bringing pleasure to God who created us. Why we're frustrated in life is very simple. We have not got to the basics of why we're here. Why are we here? What's our purpose? What's our future? What hope do we have? Why, you know, why, why, why? Well, let me tell you. Why is very simple. You got here because God created you. And He created you for a simple reason, to bring Him pleasure. You're to please Him in all that you do. The second thing was it had to do with the position of our Creator. In Psalm 115, 3, we saw that our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. We have seen how logically it is to please earthly authority, whether it's in the, in the workplace, whether it's a child in the family setting, whether it's a spouse in a relationship with one another, whether it's a, a citizen in a government under which they, they find themselves. There is earthly benefits to submitting to authority. Well, why is there not the same spiritual benefits to recognizing the authority of God in our life? We should be as motivated to please God as we are to please our human authority because they're subject to either keeping us employed, promoting us in our employment, or rewarding us for the, for the type of employment that we demonstrate while we work where we work. That motivates a lot of people. We should be equally motivated to please God. We also saw 
that we should be motivated to please God because of the person of Jesus Christ. John 8, 29, Jesus said, you know what? My whole reason, my whole purpose in being on this earth is to bring pleasure to God the Father. I do everything to please God. That was the example that he set for us. We also see the prospect of judgment. Not In this particular case, 2 Corinthians dealing with the prospect for Christians, people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and can consider themselves part of the family of God, have received Him. This judgment is for those people who have done that. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will one day appear before the judgment or beam a seat of Christ. That you will give an account for all that you've done while here on this earth and you will be re rewarded according to what is good and bad. That should motivate us. One day you're going to have an employee review before the God of the, of, of the universe, and before Jesus Christ specifically, and you're going to have to give an account for what you did while you were here. That should motivate us to do something. We also see the persecution of the Apostle Paul. He said, you know what? No one puts up with all the things that I did unless the overwhelming desire was to please God. I'm not doing this to please people because people can never be pleased. In fact, what I've been doing is, has gotten me beaten up has got me stoned, has got me shipwrecked, has got me bit by snakes, have got me thrown in prison. The thing that I'm doing is getting me in a lot of trouble here on earth, but one nice thing about it is it sure is racking up some good points with God in heaven. So I put up with all of that. And the sixth thing was the problem of selfishness. You know, if there's one thing that should motivate us more than anything else is that a selfish lifestyle does not pay any dividends here on this earth. None at all. And in fact, if you want to look down through and look at the evidence in our life and in our society and our culture, selfishness is destroying our society. Why are people being divorced at record rates? Selfishness. Somebody wants something better for themselves at the expense of everybody else. Why are people murdered? Why are people raped? Why is there abuse in our society? Why is there child abuse? Why is there spouse abuse? Why is there embezzlement? Why are all these things going on? You know why? Selfishness. Someone wants something at someone else's expense. And you look at it and go, the evidence is overwhelming. We're a selfish people and it's leading to a lot of problems. So if nothing else should motivate us in pleasing God, the results of selfishness and the destruction that we see in our culture and society should make us at least believe for a moment that, hey, guess what? Selfishness doesn't work. And if you ever buy a new outfit and you want everybody to see it, come in late because, Mary, everybody watched you walk down the aisle. <laughs> and it's not your fault. You're looking good today. But it amazes me what can distract people so easily. And there was the whole single row that looked. <laughs> I saw all you guys. Man, you guys are unbelievable. I say, hey, man, she got a ring on? I say, oh, man. <laughs> oh, just kidding, just kidding, because we're going quick. Here we go. So anyway, like I said a minute ago, uh, pleasing, you know, wanting to do something right and having the means to do it are two different things. Wanting to do something right and having the means to do it are two different things. We need to have the means or the method available to us which would bring pleasure to God. I want, hey, I mean, let me can I ask you a person. Do you want to, seriously, do you want to in your life please God? Three people do. That's good. That's good. Do I hear four? Can I hear five? Maybe five. Yes, there's five on IC6. Um, if you do, then the next question you have to ask is, well, hey, I'm excited. How do I do it? Let's, in fact, let's do it. Can you do it for a second? I'm excited. How can I do it? I'm excited. How can I do it? 
I'm glad you asked. There are nine ways that we saw that it can be done. Nine ways. You got a piece of paper? You're going to have to write these down because you're never going to remember them. In fact, what probably happened, well, I'll tell you what, let me offer this challenge to you. If you're with somebody and one of these points needs to be drummed home in their life, then do me a favor, just memorize that one point and discuss it with them a little bit later, sometime, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. Because you know what happens? Is that it's like right when I leave here, I don't like people come up to me saying, you know, on that third overhead there was a misspelling. I'm a little vulnerable right after I get done. I don't want to hear it. So what my wife has gotten good at doing is she waits like Tuesday or Wednesday. Now I hate Tuesday or Wednesdays. But, um, but that's okay. And yeah, maybe it has something to do with by the time you write me a letter, I don't get it till Tuesday or Wednesday because you usually mail it on Monday. But anyway, here we go. Ready? How to please God. Number one, by exalting Jesus Christ. By exalting Jesus Christ. Let me explain to you exactly what we're talking about. All of us are put in a position in life at different times to make a decision as to who gets the glory or the credit for the successes or the accomplishment of our life. Every one of us at some point in time are being asked to make a decision as to who's going to get the credit for your life. Who gets the credit for the success in your marriage? Who gets the credit for the success in your academics? Who gets the credit for the success in your business? Who gets the credit for the success in the way your children turn out? Who gets the success, uh, the credit for the success in whatever area of life? Every one of us, I am convinced, at some point in time, will have to address that question. The, the interesting thing will be, who do you give the credit to? See, many of us will give the credit to God. Because God doesn't threaten anybody. God is everybody's concept of God is acceptable. So let us pray to God. And everyone walks away going, great. And then we mumble to whomever we think he, she, or it is. And that's alright. But not for God's people. See, because what God wants us to do that pleases Him more than anything else is to exalt the name of Jesus Christ in the world in which we live. We have got to get out of the lame habit of saying, God bless me, the big guy in the sky, the man up above, or whatever the phenomenon you like to use when you're discussing things with other people that make you feel more comfortable and certainly make them feel more comfortable. We have got to get out of the bad habit of not naming the name of Jesus when it comes to giving credit to whom it is due. Jesus Christ. Memorize the name and use it when you're asked the question, who do you attribute the success in your marriage to? Until I met Jesus Christ, our marriage had no hope. Until I came to know Jesus Christ, I didn't have a prayer at being a good father, of being a good employee, of being a good citizen, of being whatever God has determined that I will be. I didn't have a chance in a lifetime to do it. But you know what? When I met Jesus Christ, He changed my life. And in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, we read this. The voice of God the Father 
It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said this, This is my Son, in whom, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. All of the plan of God is founded in the life of Jesus Christ. Everything that God says is good, everything that God has planned for mankind and humanity in the future is centered in the person of Jesus Christ. We have got to get away from the attitude that somehow or another we can just come off like everybody else and give God credit. We know what we mean, but they don't know what we mean. They don't have a clue. And so they can walk away just as confused about the identity of God as you were before someone explained to you that God is Jesus Christ in human flesh. And that's why in Colossians 1, 15 through 19, it says, He is, speaking of Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him, and all things were created for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. Jesus. It's a name that God has given Him above every other name. You remember the angel came to Mary and Joseph and said, You shall name Him Jesus. Why? Because He will save His people from their sins. He was given a name that was determined by God from the foundations of the world. It was a special name. There will be no other name like it. It's not Jesus. It's Jesus. And Jesus was given that name because He had a specific purpose and mission, and that was to save us from our sin if we decided all we want to do is accept that provision. Later on, we see in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus... That name God gave him, the Father, because he was obedient and humbled himself as a servant to the point of death. Because he died on the, sin, on the cross for our sins, he was given a name above every other name that at his name, every person that's ever been created on the face of the earth is going to bow one day and recognize that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Of people who are on earth, of people who are in heaven, of people who are in hell, every person ever created is going to recognize that Jesus Christ is God. So the question I have for you is, as an application, have you begun to make a conscious effort to give Jesus Christ the credit and the glory for what's happening in your life instead of using terms like God or the big guy in the sky or the man up above or whatever? Eliminate all that and let's just start telling people about Jesus. And you know what? If you do that, God is well pleased. <sighs> Number two. You want to know why 75% of people in America hate their jobs? You want to know why? Let me tell you why. I'm glad that you asked. Now you're starting to catch on. According to a recent Gallup poll, 75% in America hate their jobs, dread getting up and even going to work. And I've got to ask a question why. And I believe it has to do with what we're going to learn now. Because if you want to please God, giving to others in time of need pleases God. We go to work for self-fulfillment. We go to work for self-pleasure. We go to work for promotions. We go to work for more money. We go, go to work for more benefits to us. If I get a raise and I get a promotion, then I have more power, I have more recognition, I get more strokes. If I can get more money out of it, great, because I can buy more things, and I can be looked at, and I can have this, and I can have that, and I can do all these things, and then we wonder why we hate our jobs. 
because everything we do revolves around pleasing us. And we can't please ourselves because we're hard to please. And you think your spouse is hard to please, you ought to try pleasing you. <laughs> they got the same problem with you. We can't please ourselves. And that's why we're so frustrated with our jobs. Because we have lost the purpose of work according to the Word of God. Do you want to know why we're supposed to work? What the purpose and meaning is all about as far as work is concerned? I love Philippians 4.18 where Paul says, I've received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphrodites the gifts that you sent. They're a fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul was thrown into prison. He was a gospel. It was a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He ran around t exalting Jesus Christ, telling people about Jesus. They threw him in prison. They didn't want to hear it. And I guarantee the same thing. People around you aren't going to want to hear it. They don't like to hear anything else, but please don't mention Jesus. And so when he began to do that, they threw him in prison. There's a price to pay for that. And you know what was wonderful about it? The people of God didn't forget about Paul in prison. And you know why they worked? They worked to meet his needs. They work to support those who are out there exalting the name of Jesus Christ. And so the purpose that they found is, hey, you know what? I love going to work because if I can work and work some more and I can make some more money, then it gives me more money to give to those who are exalting the name of Jesus and I feel fulfilled and I love it because the name of Jesus is being exalted. And it pleases God there and now I go to work so I can please God too because I'm meeting the needs of those who have a need. And guess what? It also has to do with, in Ephesians 4.28, says, he who has been stealing, don't steal anymore, but must work. See how it goes? You stealing, stop stealing. Now what are you supposed to do? Work. Okay, why are we supposed to work? Well, because uh, we need more things. No, not at all. So that we must work doing something useful for our hands. Why? The purpose. That he may have something to share with those in need. You want to start enjoying work again? Then start sharing the blessings of God with those who have needs in this life around us. Stop being so selfish. Orange County is nauseating to people who live outside Orange County and even to people like me who live here. <laughs> All we get excited about is... Uh, thank you. All we get excited about is how much money we make and how the median income is. And the median income keeps going up and what we do and give to people around us keeps going down as a percentage. Pretty soon we're going to make so much money that the percentage is going to disappear. That's the way I see the trend going more money we make, the percentage keeps getting smaller. We keep making more money, there's not going to be a percentage. It's going to be gone. Why? Because we're, we're just saturated by the narcissistic society in which we live that says that everything we do is for our pleasure. And it's not true. God says, you want to start enjoying work again? Then stop stealing, start working. Stop stealing, start working. Stop stealing, start working. And the reason that you do it is so that you can meet the needs of those around you. There are people who have needs around you. Open your eyes. Application time. How many of you, since we first saw this, in depth, by the way, have made it a part of your line item budget to meet the needs of others who are less fortunate than you? Whether it's to give to the church that exalts the name of Jesus Christ, whether it's to give to missions who exalt the name of Jesus Christ, whether it's to meet the physical needs of those around us who are less fortunate than we are. How many of you have actually made it a consistent part of your budget to meet needs? You know what? My whole mindset changed when I studied the Word of God. I used to begrudge the fact that I had to pay bills or I had to meet my kids' needs. Blessing, blessing, they're a burden. No, they're not. They have physical needs. And the way that we meet those needs is a reflection of our understanding of what the purpose is for what God has us doing. 
If we look at it as a blessing to meet the needs of others, all of a sudden we'll bring pleasure to God. That's what God is trying to get across. You hate your job? Why don't you start being a little more generous and you know what will happen? You can't wait to get to work and try to make as much money as you can because you might meet more and more people that have needs and you don't have enough and so you're just going to ask God, God, keep giving me promotions and raises and keep giving me more money so I can keep giving it away. You know what God says? Malachi, test me in these things and I'll guarantee you this. I'll open the floodgates of heaven and I'll pour them through that funnel and you just keep on giving because I'll keep on blessing you. But you keep on withholding from me and I'll shut it off. Shut it off. And you'll start to hate your job again. Number three. By believing in God and His promises. You know, I'm very concerned about the positive confession, name it, claim it, faith movement that is catching on in the Christian culture. Very, very concerned about it. Because it's a very dangerous thing. And it was brought to mind last week at this conference that we were at because we have become a feeling-oriented society. If it feels good, that's the state motto, California. If it feels good, do it. And if it don't, sue them. <laughs> that's the other little part of it there. But that's it. If it feels good, do it. If it don't, sue them. And that's the way that it works. And I'm very concerned about this positive confession, name it, claim it, and, and it was brought to light. And I'm going to give you an illustration. I'm not going to use a person's name because it grieved me to even hear him say it. We're at this conference and a guy stood up and he said, you know what? And he stood up before everybody and said, I just want to tell you right now that my wife is pregnant. And the doctors warned us that if she got pregnant, that it could be jeopardizing to her health and her life. But we believe that God wants us to be happy we believe God wants nothing good to happen in our life. And so, we know that that child will be born healthy and we know my child will be fine. Because we know that's what God wants. We're claiming it to be true. And it broke my heart. Because the way I read Scripture, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called in accordance to His purpose. God causes all things. Scripture never says that all things are good. And it's a good thing it doesn't say it because it would be pretty obvious looking around at the world in which we live in, not all things are good, not all people are good, not all motives are right. There is sin in this world. But we know God causes all things, whether it be someone's death or someone's illness, whether it be whatever, we know that God can cause that to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes to those who put God's promises in His Word ahead of their own feelings. Feelings are an emotional roller coaster ride. We have got to base our faith on the promises of God and not on our feelings. Why are we getting divorced? Oh, I feel God wants me happy. Why even an affair? Because God wants me happy. Why are you doing this? Because God wants me happy. God doesn't want you happy. God wants you to be obedient to His Word and the promises that you find in it. And so when it says in Hebrews 11:6, it says, And without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. God doesn't want us to be happy, feeling good all the time, emotionally high, and always excited about everything. 
God wants you to be obedient to his promises, believing what he says is true, even though the circumstances may lead you to believe, I don't understand what's going on. God wants you to believe his promises. The objective word of God. So the application? Do you know the word of God? It's frustrating to listen to people who say, well, you know, I was praying the other night and God told me my, my God told me to tend my garden. This is what one guy said. God told me to tend my garden. So we're listening. And I'm listening. I can't wait to hear this. God told him to tend his garden. And then he said, you know, and I was reading through the Bible and I find that the Bible said my garden is my heart. Now we're in a group like this and it's kind of like, you want to just say, where did he say that? No, seriously, where did he say it? What passage and what verse? I'm so sick of people who just use God and take him out of context and quote things. It's like, show me what you're talking about. And then he proceeded to say something that just didn't make any sense at all, but it was a good thing he said God told him to do it. And God showed him it. I'm just glad God shows me everything he wants me to know and hear so I don't have to worry about whether I'm hearing him right or not. Got too many distractions. Got TV on in the background, kids asking questions, things going on. Man, it's like, now I think I'll just read this. You know what I mean? What are you doing to learn more about his promises? That should be the application. If it pleases God that you believe His promises, you need to know what they are. Simple. Number four. We see that asking for wisdom pleases God. Asking for wisdom pleases God. You know, I thought about this as uh, Solomon was having a discussion with God in 1 Kings 3, 9, and 10. And uh, Solomon said, Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right or wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked this. The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for this. You, go, you know why Solomon said? Solomon said, You know what, God, I'm like a little kid. I don't know anything. Maybe everybody else thinks I'm pretty sharp and that I know a lot. And maybe people look up to me because of my position that I have in this life. And maybe I own this or I'm this or I'm this person or whatever. And people look up to me like I know a lot of stuff. Well, I just want to let you know I don't know anything. I need help. Application? You want to pray a prayer that will please God? Let's try this one. Lord, I don't have a clue what to do. I need wisdom. Amen. I need help. I don't have a clue. I don't know how to be a husband. I don't know how to be a father. It's time you figured out your grandfather. You know what I mean? I don't have. I don't know. I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue sometimes with decisions I need to make in life, business, personal. I don't have a clue what to do. I really don't. Maybe some of you are sharper than me. Maybe with experience I'll start to figure out that I don't really need God's help and I, I can just bank on my own wisdom and knowledge. But I hope that I never grow that old. I hope that I always never know anything. So that I'm always on my knees saying, God, I need your help. I don't know what to do. And the most wonderful thing is, it says, if any man lacks wisdom, it's because we all do. Let him ask of God who gives generously and above reproach. God wants you to ask him for help. He likes it when his people say, Lord, I need you. I'm not self-sufficient. I realize my inadequacies. I realize I'm not articulate. I realize I can't persuade anybody. I realize that I'm nothing. And I need you. And it says that that prayer pleases God. And I guess the application would be very simple. Why don't some of you stop being so self-sufficient? 
and start to recognize your need for the wisdom of God. And I'll guarantee you that a lot of people around you will be praising the day where you seek the wisdom of God instead of your own wisdom when you're making decisions that affect their lives. Number five. Number five, we're rolling now. Number five, you ready? What else pleases God? How to do it? Stay away from sexual sin. You know, I guess we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this, but because we live in a feel-good society, because everything's based on feelings, everything's based on pleasure, then it's no wonder that many of us fall into sexual sin. Because we're le being led down that path of deception. God wants you to be happy. So if you can do something physically that'll make you feel good, then why don't you just do it? Isn't that what God wants for your life? No, God wants obedience. And what he's saying is, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, he's saying, hey, you know what? Just stay away from sexual sin. It says, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this and more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Let me just point something out for a moment about physical pleasure, about temptations. He said, hey, you know what? You're doing a good job right now. But you've got to keep it up. Did a great job this week. Good job. Sexually pure. Good job this week. And you start to feel a little good about your accomplishments. Look at that. See, I don't really need sex. I can live without it. I'm doing a good job. Outside of marriage, by the way, all, all, all sexual activity is wrong. Heterosexual marriage, approved by God. One man, one woman, one wife, one husband, just so we clarify that. And uh, that's okay. Anything else is wrong. Your own wife, your own husband. Simple. Everything else is wrong. And so you start to feel pretty good about yourself. Oh, I'm doing a good job at this. Haven't had that problem. But you know what he says? Hey, you know what? We ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. It will be a constant source of temptation for all of us all of our lives. So don't think as you're doing good this week that you're automatically going to do next week. That's why we need the wisdom of God and the discernment to know when we're in a dangerous situation. God, am I in trouble now? Am I in the wrong place at the wrong time? Help me understand it. And so he goes on and he says, you know what? It's God's will that you should be sanctified, set aside, set apart from sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this manner, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And you know the only way that you can control sexual immorality in your life and that I can control it is by taking advantage of the power of God through his Holy Spirit who indwells me. Fruit of the Spirit, self-control. God has given us the ability, the power, to live a life that is morally pure before God. No one outside of Christ has the ability within themselves, according to the Word of God, to be able to live a life sexually that's pleasing to God. Only God's people are blessed with the ability to control this area of their life which no one else can control. Do you see that? He's not saying do it because it's going to be hard to do. He's saying, hey, do it because I don't want to have to punish you. I don't want to cause problems in your life. He's saying do it and I'll also provide the power by which you can make it happen. You don't have to fall into sexual sin. You've got the power of God through the presence of His Holy Spirit in your life to keep you from sexual immorality. Application should be very simple. No sex outside of marriage. That's it. And just pray that God gives you the strength for self-control.
and the wisdom to stay out of situations that will lead to compromise. Because Satan wants one thing of every believer, and that's to destroy your testimony in the world in which you live. Can't have your soul, he's already lost it, now all he wants to do is destroy your credibility. And nothing will destroy it more than sexual immorality. And we see it happening all around us. Number six. Want to please God, submit to authority. Please God, submit to authority. Romans 13, 1 and 2 very simply says, everyone must submit himself to governing authorities for there's no authority except that which has been established by God. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. Very timely application. If you want to please God in this area, then guess what? Obey the laws of the land. Obey the policies of, the, of your workplace. Submit to the authority that God has brought in your life. Don't cheat on your taxes. Oh, someone going, too late. I already mailed them in. <laughs> Respect your boss. Respect policemen. Respect authority. God's people are to be a light in the world in which we live. And it's amazing how someone who's in respect of authority is so different than everybody else who badmouths authority all the time. No one respects authority. It's a heart of rebellion that, that rebels not only against the authority that God's placed in it, but directly rebels against the authority of God. So in application, just start being submissive to authority. Number seven, this also pleases God, sharing the gospel with unbelievers. Sharing the gospel with unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. You know what the Apostle Paul said? Everything that he did, he did for the purpose that he may win some to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that he may win some to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know, isn't it an amazing thing? I guess from an application standpoint, maybe you should challenge you to think of this. A week shouldn't go by. A week should not go by that you and I haven't shared the gospel and the love of Christ with someone who has never heard it. Whether it's in our workplace, whether it's with relatives, whether it's with neighbors, I don't care who it's with. Whatever contacts you have, a week should not go by where you and I are not sharing God's love in the person of Jesus Christ with that person. Everything we should be doing in our friendships and relationships should have one goal and one goal alone, and that is to somehow use that credibility, that basis that we're developing, that friendship that we're nurturing, to ultimately bring them to a confrontation with the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. Who do they say Jesus Christ is? That should be the question that we get to in every one of our relationships if we truly love the people we say we love. Who do you say that Jesus is? And if it's different, then you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Savior of the world. Then we need to take time to share His love with them. Make a list of people that God is convicting you of right now that you've been holding off, that you haven't been sharing with, that you need to pray for an opportunity to be able to do so. And God will give you the courage and the power through the Holy Spirit, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to be able to share that loving message with them. God, help us to see whether we really do love the people we say we do. Number eight, which goes hand in hand with number seven, and we're just about done, is to proclaim the message of the cross. We need to proclaim the message of the cross. And very simply put, that means this. Hey, you know what? There are a lot of people, and there are a lot of seminars, and there are a lot of garbage going on out there in Christendom today about how we can persuade people into the kingdom of God. 
Don't say that. That'll offend them. Don't do this. That'll offend them. Do it this way. Do it that way. Hey, you know what? There's only one way that works. And as to share with them what the cross is all about. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, came to this earth for one purpose and one purpose alone. He, he ran, he sprinted from Bethlehem to the cross. His mission was to die for the sins of the world. That is the message of the cross. He died for your sin. He died for my sin. He died to save His people from their sin. And He rose again from the dead to prove that He could forgive sin because He asked the question, what is easier to do? Heal a person or to say you're forgiven? And they said, well, it's easier, obviously, to say you're forgiven. And He said, in order that you know that I can forgive you from sin, He took the man with a withered hand and He healed him and He made him whole to prove to them He was the God who could forgive sin. What is easier to do? Say your sins are forgiven or to raise someone from the dead? Well, obviously, it's easier to say something than it is to do it. Well, good. In order that you know that I can do what I say, I'm going to do it and prove it to you. And three days later, He rose from the dead to prove that He was God Almighty. That's the message people need to hear. They don't need to hear any other smoke screen. They don't hear any other cute little thing you can come up with. Let's just stick to the context in which men and women will be drawn to the Savior. That's the message of the cross. I like what one man wrote. He said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, at a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek and at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. Because that is where he died, and that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's men ought to be, and what church people ought to be all about. Man, if that's not real, nothing is. Start meeting people where they are. Stop having people change to please you. Who cares? No one can please you anyway. And if they don't think so, have them call me. I know it's true. <laughs> We need to be meeting people where they are. That's the message of the gospel. That's the cross. And the last thing is we need to praise God for all things. Because it's through Jesus that we offer continual praise to God. A sacrifice of praise, a fruit of the lips that confess His name. And don't forget to do good and to share with others where with such sacrifices God is well pleased. You got your Bibles? Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I want to close on this. Because it's kind of like, you know, how do you, how do you conclude all of this? I mean, there's so much stuff. There's so much to do. But you know what I want to get? I want to get some of you people who have been walking in circles for years. I want to get some of you who have been walking in circles for years. And I want to see you take your first step forward. Stop walking around in circles. Stop being frustrated with your walk with the Lord because you're not walking ahead. Set it aside. Lay that aside and start doing this. Lay that aside and start doing that. And there's a lot of challenges. And in every one of those areas, the Bible promises that we'll please God. But you know what though? There's one thing that concerns me about all of this and that is simply this. That you and I can never do enough good things to please God outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, if you and I could work our way to heaven, Jesus Christ dies needlessly. And so my concern in teaching something like this is that some of you are thinking that I can please God in my own way and on my own terms. If I just share with people in need, that'll please God. You know, if I do this or do that, that'll please God. And that's not true. You cannot please God outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And so the point is simply this. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus and you come to know Him as the God who has come to this earth to save you from your sins and you believe that that's all you need to know because it's by grace you've been saved through faith and not of ourselves, not of works. And the reason that's the case so none of us can ever brag before God that we earned our right into heaven. Only one way and it's a, broad, it's a narrow way and the narrow way is Jesus Christ. Through His door, through Him alone will we ever get to see the presence of God. The road to destruction is broad, but the gate is narrow. And so as he was asking one day, the Pharisees were asking him in John chapter 6 and verse 28, they said to Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And what they were asking was, what do we need to do that will please God in the way we're living? You know what? Jesus never got sidetracked because he knew there was only one way to ever please God the Father. And he said, Jesus answered said to him, this is the work of God, that you share with those who have need. That you give 10%. That you be baptized. That you go to church. He didn't get into any of that. You know what he said? This is the work of God. That you believe in Him. In Him whom He has sent. You know what? And they knew exactly what he was saying. Because look at their response. They therefore said to Him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? The sign's already done. He rose from the dead. He is alive today. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And for all those who have put their faith and trust in him, we have a glorious hope that this world doesn't have to offer about the future. We know he's coming back. And the wonderful thing about it is that as we've come to know him, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in this flesh, on this earth, and in this time, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to please God as a reflection of what God has already done through Jesus Christ in my life. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank You for this opportunity just to get together and to, and to look at Your Word, how clear it is on what pleases You. God, help us never to get sidetracked by a world that says there's a list of do's and don'ts and someday if you do enough of them, that'll please you. And if we don't do enough, then you're going to be ticked off. But that we look at Your Word and see it for what it says. And you tell us very simply this, that the work that pleases you most is the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross when He shed His blood for the sins of humanity that all who receive that sacrifice, just believing that it to be true, that there's nothing else that we can do, that it's all your work, that we believe that. You say that you give us the right, the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in your name. You tell us that there's no other name under heaven except Jesus by which men will be saved. And God, I just pray that we could become more vocal in exalting His name before the world in which we live. Because as time runs short on this era of human history, there's a sense of urgency that all believers should feel to let everybody that we possibly can know of Your great love and forgiveness and the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. God, give us the power, give us the sense of urgency to be able to be vocal in the arenas in which You put us. To stand firm on the Word of God on your objective promises and not on how we feel today or tomorrow, but knowing that it's your word that promises our security in the future. And we just thank you and praise you that we've learned so many things. Now help us to discern what we need to be doing immediately and may we lay off the old and put on the new and start walking so we can ultimately run this race that you've put us in. And all God's people said, Amen.